three. Hello, um, I'm with Kimberly LaPointe. Uh, we, we've uh, had a few interviews with Kimberly over the last uh, few months of our, our COVID um, shutdown. And Kimberly is a scientist and her um, particular focus right now in, in, her, in her work is uh, regarding COVID. And so she's kind of an expert for us uh, that uh, we really trust because she's able to give us the, uh, the scoop without any um, political bias at all. We're gonna get the, get the uh, you know, more, more uh, pure truth, I believe, from, from Kimberly. And it's been a while since we've talked to her, so there's a lot that's unfolded in the time that uh, we have uh, been on a hiatus here. But we're gonna take some time today to give uh, Kimberly a chance to get us caught up on a lot of the, the salient issues that are, that are at work. Um, in this whole area of COVID. We're all very interested. I think the further we go, we're even more intense about this thing being over and, uh, and <laughs> one day it will. Um, I think one of the things that's close to home for us here in Florida is that uh, there's a concern about second wave uh, that uh, the media, um, media promotes a bit and uh, concerned about the reopening of Florida uh, in terms of restaurants and, and events and uh, certainly the public schools, the colleges, there are a lot of different fronts in which this is um, impacting us. And uh, what the, what, what's the science seeing uh, in regard, I know it's a little early um, in, the, in the curve for infection rates with the reopening of Florida, but certainly not with the schools. They've been around, they've been back in for a, a month or two. What are, you, what, are you, what are they finding in the data right now? So, yeah, so I think, you know, one of the interesting things about the way that the U.S. has responded to COVID-19 um, is that we've had different approaches in different parts of the country, which has been good and bad. I mean, it's been bad for the overall, you know, stoppage, quote unquote, or, or, or stomping of the curve nationally. But it does let us sort of look at what's working some places versus another, let's just, you know, for better or worse. Um, experiment with different approaches. Um, that's not a great thing in terms of the amount of loss, but it does let us look at different models. And what I would say in terms of the second wave, um, there's going to be a lot of media narrative coming about the second wave. And that is because, you know, a lot of times we're very focused on sort of the, you know, the media markets are very focused on sort of the northern part of the country. And in fact, most of the U.S. does have seasonal temperature changes in a way that we don't down here in the Sun Belt. And so as expected, we are kind of volleying the risk and the rising numbers from the South now back up to the North. And that's a lot to do with not so much the climate's effect on the virus, but the climate's effect on human behavior. And so we talked a little bit about last time, the fact that Floridians go inside at the same time that the rest of the country comes outside, right? So Texas, Florida, Southern California, the places where you saw Arizona, the places where you saw a dramatic spike in June and July, it's because we're all going inside and retreating to air conditioned spaces when the rest of the country is coming outside. And so we have come back down out of that really ugly period that we had over the summer. We're kind of holding tight in a two to 3,000 cases a day space, which is not a great stasis. I mean, that's still a really high number of infections compared to where a lot of the North was able to get to with more aggressive lockdowns. Um, but the good news is we're not in that crazy growth anymore and we have sort of found um, sort of a leveling off of the cases for now. 
Um, I think that most scientific data would suggest that we'll continue to see that and that the North will now see a rise as they go inside into heat spaces. One of the things we've learned is that more so than surface, you know, oh my gosh, I just touched something that somebody else touched. Certainly a, some degree of concern, but a much bigger concern is recirculated air in indoor spaces, which is spreading the virus further than your six feet. And so I think we we're now quite firm in understanding that those going into those inside spaces, whether it's going back to an office, whether it's going into a restaurant, you know, that the air circulation and the amount of filtered air and that type of thing really matters um, for the spread. So I think you will see it creep back up in the north. Hopefully. Um, you know, we've, we've made enough progress sort of in the treatment diagnosis um, and, and responsiveness that it won't get as bad in places like New York City and densely populated places as it did um, last winter. But, you know, time will tell. And hopefully we're in the home stretch here. Great. Well, kind of, uh, you know, related to that, I mean, we, we, we hear... Um, things about treat, treatment and vaccine. And I, and I think there's a, maybe a little bit of misunderstanding about which is which in that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, with uh, President Trump's recent uh, uh, COVID infection, um, there apparently some confusion that may have came, come out of that as well as to, to uh, what, what's treatment, what's vaccine. And you wanna give us some clarity about that? Yeah, so it, it is very confusing and so, you know, when we talk about a vaccine, I mean, a vaccine, generally speaking, is a term that we use when we're talking about the prevention of infection. And so you're talking about introducing some part of the virus um, to your immune system prior to being exposed in the hopes that if and when you ever are exposed to the virus, that your body is already has a circulating antibody response or a um, a memory immune response that lets you immediately launch into making antibodies to that virus that would neutralize it before it could start producing you. So that's what we mean when we say vaccine is something that goes into your body and makes your body make antibodies, um, which is the, you know, the proteins that our immune system make that will kind of coat the outside of the virus and make it so that it can't do anything. So that's what we mean when we say vaccine. Now, the thing that gets a little bit confusing is that in modern medicine, um, sometimes drugs, particularly in the areas of cancer and inflammation diseases, the drugs themselves are antibodies. So they are laboratory produced antibodies. Um, They're antibodies that usually start in a mouse and then are somehow genetically altered to be safe to be injected into humans. And so when President Trump became infected, um, it made it to the press that he was given a drug that's still in an experimental phase, which is a monoclonal antibody drug made by Regeneron. And so what that is, is not a vaccine um, because it's something that we, um, it's not a vaccine per se, it is a treatment. Um, that can be effective, or the hope is that it can be effective if given very early on an infection, basically until your body has a chance to make its own antibodies, you're putting antibodies in. And it's the same concept as the convalescent sera, so the, the blood that was being donated by people who had had past infections. But this lets us be a little more precise about the dosing and the strategy and what the antibodies are specific to, and so is, is probably going to be more effective than that convalescent sera. So um, 
that is a drug that can be used very early on and, and has been really, really had some good early clinical trial um, success and, and had some pretty dramatic shift in terms of positive outcomes, but it's been still at an experimental phase. Um, obviously, when you're the president, you can get access to experimental drugs. And so that his clinicians apparently decided to go ahead and green light that. And so, um, you know, I guess from all the evidence we can see, it, it at least had no negative effect and perhaps maybe even had a positive effect on, on his prognosis. Um, now, that drug, that monoclonal antibody drug, um, I think a lot of scientists and clinicians sort of hope that it can be a bridge to a true vaccine. Um, and what I mean by that is that the idea is not only can it be a really good early treatment for people who get sick, but perhaps it could be used as what we call a, it's called a ring fence vaccine strategy, which would be that, let's say I became infected with, with coronavirus, I had a positive test, I started to receive the Regeneron monoclonal antibody treatment, they could potentially think about administering that proactively to my immediate family members to stop them from getting it from me. And then therefore you are creating a roadblock to the spread um, of the infection. That would really be dependent on timing as a strategy. You would have to really know the minute somebody was infected, but same way that sometimes when you get the flu, they will put the whole family on, you know, the, the Tamiflu, the anti-flu, um, uh, the antiviral that they sometimes prescribe for that. So, you know, it's just a way of kind of reining in the infection spread and maybe that could help us really bridge to a true vaccine. But it is different than a vaccine because these are finished antibodies that are basically taking the place of your own body's response to the drug. Um, he also received from Desivir, which is something we've talked about in the past, and that's more of a direct sort of missile for the virus. That's an antiviral that interrupts the virus's ability to replicate. So that's a true kind of more synthetic drug. Very good. Um, I know that uh, in, as at the date we're recording this, uh, there have been recently, including just a few minutes before we started, some notifications of several of the uh, vaccine trials being um, paused because of some, um, some aberrant um, um, uh, results. I know that Oxford University had something recently that was, they suspended that for a bit. Uh, Johnson & Johnson has just done that this week and Eli Lilly just a, a few moments ago just got an announcement that they paused mm -hmm. theirs as well. Is that a cause for concern or how does that fit into the normal process of vaccine development? Yeah, so it's a very normal part of stage three um, clinical trials. So remember when we talked about phase one and phase two being the very, is it safe, very early um, stages, does it work? And then phase three is where you go to a much bigger human trial. Um, so each of these trials, and there are, oh gosh, I think there's eight or eight to 12 total, um, but there's four or five that are in phase three, which is a much bigger 30 to 40,000 person per trial, um, you know, are involved in these studies. And so uh, most of them are double blind studies, which means that if you have 30,000 people getting the vaccine, half of them get the real vaccine, half of them get salt water or some sort of buffer or adjuvant, you know, something, some sort of benign cocktail um, that has no active ingredient. Um, and then the doctor who administers the, the, the vaccination nor the patient know which one they received and you sort of track symptoms over time. I mentioned that because 
um, what you have is somebody is in the study. I have, so I, we're going to talk about, I think in a minute that I'm in one of the clinical trials. I have a card that I carry in my wallet that if I go to the hospital with any type of sickness or anything, I'd give that card. The hospital will then report to the study that I'm having whatever is going on. Um, and so at that stage, they don't even know yet if I got the placebo or if I got the, um, the real, the real drug, the real vaccine. Also, it's very, very likely that, that whatever illness is going on is unrelated to the vaccine, but they pause the trial in an abundance of caution until they can really complete that investigation. So in the case of the Oxford candidate, there was a neurological illness that threw up a red flag. They immediately paused um, the vaccine and then the UK has restarted it. The US is waiting for the FDA, FDA to complete its um, its investigation before allowing the Oxford trial to go forward. But the UK has restarted it and already run down that they do not believe that it's connected to the vaccine in any way. 30,000 people is a lot of people. If you not, if you monitor 30,000 people for a period of three to four months, you know, some of them will have um, bad medical health things happen. And so it does not immediately mean it's connected to the vaccine and it requires um, investigation. I think when you hear about those pauses, it should make you feel better, not worse, you know, that they are being cautious, even in this very emergency, you know, run up and compressed timelines, that they're still, you know, doing what they should be doing and looking very closely at every case, um, you know, of illness and, and making sure that they don't have any reason to believe it's from the vaccine. So among the, um, the vaccines that are in trial that are considered the 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 front runners the early early release ones how are are they all pretty much on track at this point or are they in part of this mix too no they are there's four i mean the oxford one did have that brief interruption like i said it's it's back on track in the uk and i think most people um see it as one of the more promising ones actually um i i think that it is very likely that we're going to have three or four approved candidates by the end of the year um, by January, certainly, um, kind of there, there are that many trials that are on track with their enrollments in the trial. Um, and so I, I think that everyone is still feeling really encouraged that we're going to have, we're going to have approvals by the end of the year. Um, you know, I think this is where I would caution everybody, like I always do in these, in these podcasts to be sort of savvy consumers of the media, because um, you know, we have an election at the beginning of November, that's the reality. And so um, there may be motivation to sort of announce that they're pursuing approval by a certain date. Um, but the truth is that November has been one of the real, uh, it has been the time frame that we've been looking at pretty much the whole time. It's been what Dr. Fauci has said kind of all along. He said, I think by Thanksgiving, I think by the end of November. If they announce the last week of October that they're submitting you know, if they're submitting for approval, that's likely what was happening the whole time. Um, so, you know, I don't think that anybody should feel like it was pulled in a rush due specifically to the election. Um, you know, I think the messaging could very well be pulled in, the announcement, you know, some of these companies, especially the ones taking money from the US government could feel pressured to go out with announcements in a certain time frame. But it's, it's not likely to change sort of the timeline of the actual approval process. Um, these companies all went in together on a commitment to a certain level of data. And, and so far, it, I haven't seen anything that would suggest that they're pulling out of that commitment. You know, they, they need a certain number of months, certain portion of their trial enrollees have to be monitored for the full two to three months um, for, for 
safety and, and for effectiveness, frankly, to make sure that it's still working. Very good. Well, you, you'd mentioned that you, you were participating in a, in a trial, and I'm sure since you know, we're all anticipating uh, vaccine, and I'm sure there's a range of uh, emotions about that, some super hopeful and some maybe a little bit cautious. And you've, you've had a, a double dose, right? Um, a two-stage two dosing. And uh, what was that like for you? And uh, did you, I mean, I know that there was a placebo and the, the um, actual vaccine and the double blind. Um, do you have a sense of which part of that you might have been on? I do, I do. So um, a couple of things. I mean, first, just a note about vaccines. I mean, I think we all have this rudimentary sort of understanding about vaccines that what you're doing is exposing us to the virus in a small amount or something and so that you can um, get that immune response. And that's true in concept, but the reality is that for all of these front runners, you are not injecting the person with coronavirus. So anybody who has this sense that the vaccine is injecting SARS-CoV-2, it, it is not. And so um, they are all looking at, if you remember, we all now are very familiar with the picture of the virus itself, and it has the spiky proteins on the outside. So they're called literally the spike one and spike two proteins. Um, all of the vaccines are targeted at getting your body to make antibodies just to that spike protein that's on the outside. That's it. So the vaccine, the virus, I'm sorry, cannot replicate without what's in the middle of it, without the genetic material, the RNA that's in the middle of it, that gets into your cell that causes your cells to make more virus. That's, that's how a virus lives. So without that component, you cannot get coronavirus. Um, so some of the vaccines are looking to inject the whole protein um, in another sort of viral car. So they take like a cold virus and they heat kill it and they put the, they, they genetically modify that, that cold virus to include the spike protein that's in SARS-CoV-2 so that when your body makes um, antibodies to that viral, the outside shell of that virus, um, it also makes antibodies to that spike protein. So most of the candidates um, are actually using RNA to make that um, spike protein. And so this is a, a strategy where it's going to inject RNA into your cells and make your body actually make the spike proteins, but only the spike proteins, so not the rest of the virus, not the part that can make you sick, only that protein on the outside of it. And the reason for that is that spike protein is kind of like the hand that turns the doorknob to get into your cells. So there's receptors on the outside of your cells and that spike protein attaches. And so if you can coat that spike protein with antibodies, you're going you're gonna to block it from being able to enter. It just literally just covers it so it can't bind to the cell. So yes, I am in the clinical trial. I am in Pfizer's clinical trial. Um, and theirs is one of these RNA strategies, which we've never used for infectious disease vaccination. We've used the science for the delivery of certain cancer immunotherapeutics, but we've never used it for an infectious disease vaccine. Um, so it is two doses. I think that we should all prepare ourselves that all of these front runners are two doses. Um, partly that's because it is a novel virus. So it's something that none of us, except the ones who have been unfortunate enough to already have COVID-19, none of us have had it before. And so when young children, for instance, under a certain age get the flu vaccine, they often have to get two doses. 
Um, when we get the MMR shot, the measles, mumps, and rubella shot when we're little, we have to get multiple doses. Um, but then when we're adults, we don't have to anymore. You know, basically your system, your immune system has to see it multiple times when it's never seen it before to make a lasting immune response. Um, I think most people are hopeful that this period, this first year, these initial vaccines are going to have to be two dose and that then in subsequent years, or maybe in a couple years, we will have something more similar to the flu shot, which is only one dose. But these first versions are very likely to be two doses where that you get four weeks apart. So when I got the first shot, I got the first shot at the end of August. Um, and I had, I would say, just a very local response. I had some swelling around the injection site, um, some hardness, you know, kind of like you get when you get a vaccine, like a little knot of inflammation, um, some soreness, but very localized to the injection site. And so after that first dose, I really didn't have a good sense. I mean, I thought it was a little bit more painful than I would expect from just salt water, but um, a little bit more inflammation than I would expect, but certainly could have been convinced it was just the placebo. Um, four weeks later, I got the second dose and, um, I did have much more sign of an immune response. And by that, I mean, I had chills, um, almost like a feverish feeling, no actual fever, but I had chills and like shivers, um, the night that I got it and the next night. So for about 48 hours off and on, I had chills. I had achiness in my joints. I had a, a sense of fatigue, not sleepiness, but that sort of almost like sloth feeling in your, in your muscles where it's an effort to move. Um, and so I would say that, you know, my, my hypothesis at this point would be that I got the real thing just because it did last for a couple of days that I had those type of indications that my immune system was mounting a response. So it's very good news in the sense that, um, the, the vaccine elicited an immune response, right? Because those types of symptoms come from your body reacting to the presence of something that shouldn't be there. So that's what we need to happen. Um, Advil took care of it all. You know, it would just, it was nothing so serious that, you know, couldn't be treated with some Tylenol or Advil and, and managed in the way you normally would. Um, but yeah, certainly better than COVID-19, but there was about 48 hours of that type of discomfort. That's great. That's encouraging. And thanks for being willing to help us all with your, uh, your uh, participation in that trial. Kind of related to that, it's been, um, been talked about recently, too. And some of, the, some of the attempted trials or the trials that are going on, that there's been um, demographically some challenges uh, that, as I understand it, there, you know, these various drug companies are trying to get a um, uh, a representative um, demographic uh, of our of our country, and so that the vaccine is uh, um, effective across the board, not just a particular part of the population. And yet, there's been some difficulty uh, that some trials have had in getting sufficient uh, Hispanic uh, folk and African Americans to participate. Mm -hmm. And um, what you're thinking about that? What, do you have a hypothesis on that? Yeah. So, I mean, we have, you know, in the, in the scientific community, I think, you know, for a long time, medical discovery was very biased towards white men, like, like a lot of things. It's sort of who we thought about in terms of a, a market for drugs and then who we did the vast majority of the testing on. Um, so for a long time, new drug development was under tested in women and certainly under tested in, in minority groups. Now, 
Um, you know, and so the result of that was some drugs that don't work as well in certain populations as they do in others. Um, you know, some of the popular sort of synthetic drugs for cholesterol and heart disease, you know, there's a lot of um, sort of hypotheses that, that circulate that they don't work well in black communities, for instance, and that, you know, we, we sort of under tested that type of thing for a long time. And so in an appropriate response to that, the FDA now sort of requires a certain demographic mix. Um, you know, you have to have a representative sample, you have to have an age, you know, demographic represented, um, you have to have a racial and a gender um, demographic represented, and then they pile on their real desires, which is to have vaccine enrollees who have um, the best chance of actually being exposed to the virus. Um, so they want essential workers, they want healthcare workers, they want people who ride public transportation. Um, you know, that's the wish list of the vaccine company because they're, they're hoping for people to be exposed. Um, I think that the medical community at the same time, um, undeniably has a long and painful history of taking advantage of, um, poorer minority communities for medical experimentation. Um, we certainly had a long unethical period where we used prison populations and where we used minority groups. Um, you know, anybody who has read um, The Secret Life of Henrietta Lacks, which is um, a, a very interesting book about sort of um, a big advance in cell biology that we used in a, in a black woman in Baltimore in the 50s out of Johns Hopkins. Um, where, you know, her cells were taken without her consent and used for medical experimentation. Um, that was a very, became a very sort of public, you know, Oprah Book Club kind of book that I think awakened us to a lot of those abuses that went on for a long time. Um, and then worse things than that, you know, um, during certain, you know, syphilis studies and things like that, we deliberately exposed people. And so we have a long and painful history of taking advantage of um, vulnerable populations. And, you know, I think now, even though our intentions are the opposite, our intentions are to, to be more eyes wide open and mindful of developing drugs that work for everybody. I think we are, you know, rightfully so having to overcome some emotion and, um, and, and cynicism and distrust, um, frankly. So I know there are people who are being paid by the vaccine companies to kind of go door to door in certain communities and try to, you know, make a case for participation, but I don't know how effectively that's going. Um, I read an article that would suggest that it's not going all that well. So um, yeah, and, and also the other thing that's going on is technically speaking, when I enrolled in this vaccine, I'm agreeing to be unvaccinated for two years if I was in the placebo group, because that's how long the study is supposed to last. Now, from a medical ethics perspective, it's very likely that they will unblind the studies um, as soon as there's commercially available vaccine, because there will not, you know, medical ethicists will say that there is not a good justification for keeping a placebo group well beyond the availability of a vaccine. Um, but I bring it up because we are so close to the approval of these top four candidates that now these next companies that have probably a better, and when I say better, I mean, maybe there's just the one dose, maybe better storage conditions, maybe, you know, just a little easier logistically to supply. Those companies like Johnson and Johnson is one of those is having a really hard time getting enrollees because now people feel like, well, I don't want to sign up for this study that's just getting started when there's going to be a commercially available vaccine you know, within a couple months. 
And so now they're really battling the fact that it's in the public consciousness that we're getting close on these top candidates. And so now the, the next generation candidates are having a hard time enrolling. Not sure quite how you get around that, but it's a real challenge for the study sites. Yeah, those are things I would have never thought about, but certainly are issues, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, wow. And we've never quite had anything like this. I mean, usually when you're doing a vaccine study, it lasts for years and years. And, you know, these types of developments are very slow. And, you know, people who participate in them, you know, know that there won't be a commercial product available for years. And so it's worth a try to do this now, you know, type of thing. And so um, you don't usually have quite this, this, this challenge of people feeling like, well, I'm just going to hold out now because there's going to be the real thing and probably the right. Well, so it, should the um, vaccine be available, say, at the, the first of the year, um, what will the rollout look like? Yeah. I mean, sure, it's not like everybody gets to go to the doctor the next day. and <laughs> No, 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 it, it won't be. Um, I don't think we know exactly or I don't know exactly. I think that um, all public health um, institutions and, and certainly at the state level, I think are looking at different ways to triage people. Um, you know, I think the great hope will be that it will be rolled out in a sensible way to the most vulnerable populations first. Um, and that as you get better and better supply chain up and running, um, you know, that you will then sort of have just a triage board. And so what, what I think everyone expects to happen is that, um, elderly uh, pre-existing conditions and healthcare workers would sort of be in that first group, um, maybe first responders, police, fire, that type of thing that have very high risk profiles, um, it, you know, and, and get, get it first. And then, you know, you roll out from there um, because even th those groups getting um, the vaccine first, freeze up a lot of the rest of us in terms of behavior because a lot of what we're doing is sort of to be protective of those groups and so that that becomes a loosening over time but this is why you're starting to see sort of expectation managing saying that like look just because we have a vaccine that is becoming available like we don't get to take off our masks the next day it's going to take us a little while to get it doled out to enough people um but i will say the top seven have been funded in terms of scaling up the productions. And so, you know, at least uh, Pfizer has promised the one that I'm in. I know I had the numbers written down here. Um, you know, they, they've promised a certain number, a hundred million doses, um, you know, sort of in the January timeframe of 2021 but 1.3 billion doses by the end of 21. So you see a massive ramp up, you know, so that's, I think 100 million doses is great. It's unprecedented in terms of immediately after an approval, but it's not gonna get us where we need to go. So, you know, you, you see a, a big ramp up from there. I mentioned mm -hmm. Pfizer because it's the one that the US government has, is funding actively. Very good. Um, final question uh, that uh, we hear a lot about this, Herd, herd immunity, and um, you know, how does all this fit together? I mean, what what creates the the uh, the dynamic of a herd immunity with any uh, disease like this? Mm -hmm. So, herd, you know, we are the herd, and so it's this view of 
how you stop the virus from moving through a population. And so one of the things that we observationally learned after sort of the the flu pandemics of the early 1900s and other infectious diseases is that once a certain number of the population reach immunity, that the, the virus becomes less of a threat and, and slows down in terms of transmission. So all viruses, we measure their contagiousness basically. And it's um, a number that's assigned. And the meaning of that number is for every person that gets sick, how many people do they pass it to? Um, SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, has been really difficult, I would say, to pin that down because you have this phenomenon of these asymptomatic people. And, you know, it's been one of the most intense areas of, of study as to how how contagious those asymptomatic people are and you know they're less con so there's like degrees of contagiousness among people who have COVID-19 it seems and so that makes it harder to pin down but we've arrived at a number of like two and a half to three so for every person who gets it you know they're on average passing it to two and a half to three people now we know that we have these super spreader events um, and we seem to have super spreading people even who are shedding the virus at, at higher levels for reasons unknown you know that, that maybe have a higher transmissibility. But on the average, you have two and a half to three people that get sick for every person who get it. Um, that's actually not terrible. So when we look at something like measles, it has, I think, like a 12 to 15, you know, for every person who gets it, they can pass it to 12 to 15 people. It's very, very contagious, wildly contagious. Um, so herd immunity is the idea that if you think of it like a, the virus is a ping pong ball that's bouncing around against people, the more people it runs into, that have some immunity to it. In other words, their immune system is going to coat the virus up with antibodies, not let it into their cells. They can't start replicating it, and then it just dies with them. So they can't pass it on to the next person because it never takes hold in them. And so it runs into a brick wall, that ping pong ball. Instead of going through people, it runs into a brick wall. Um, so when we say herd immunity, it's the percentage of the population that have to have immunity in order to stop that ping pong ball and, and, and basically keep it contained so that when we have little outbreaks, they just, they die, you know? So we see this largely with the flu where we have a lot of people in the country who get flu every year, mostly because those of us that are healthy have the luxury of kind of ignoring getting a flu shot, but it doesn't end up in this cataclysmic outbreak because enough people around us are, are vaccinated that it, it slows down and burns out. Um, and then with things like measles, thankfully, we have enough of a, of a herd immunity rate that it doesn't spread because of vaccination. So my point is, is that a lot of the press talks about herd immunity as a strategy versus vaccination as a strategy. And I think that's a, a situation where people are saying, well, you just have to let people get it so that the herd becomes immune. And that's not completely wrong science, but it would come at an unspeakable toll. And so we've had 200,000 people who have died of COVID-19 in the United States. And places that were early hotspots like New York City and Seattle, the most ambitious estimates I've seen is that maybe 25% of people in, in New York City have some immunity, some degree of immunity, maybe not forever immunity, but some sort of short-term immunity. Um, because they've been exposed to SARS-CoV-2. So if we've lost that many people and our hottest spots are only at 25%, and of course most of the country would be way less than that because in rural America, we just didn't have, you know, because of the population density difference, you don't have the amount of exposure. 
we're way, way far away from that in most of the country. So in order to reach herd immunity, um, scientists would say that vaccination is one of the ways you get to that. You get to herd immunity through a combination of vaccination and people getting it. It isn't one or the other. And if it is one or the other, then it comes at a horrific cost. I mean, if we were gonna to get to herd immunity from just pure exposure, um, you know, it would take years and come at, or at a really devastating toll. Um, and so if we get 25% of the hotspots, get it through, through exposure, and then people also get vaccines, um, you know, the idea is that you need the lowest estimates I've seen for COVID-19 would be 60% of the population with some immunity. The highest I've seen is more like 80%. It's a little bit of a moving target and still under study. But if you get to that, let's say 75 to 80% of the population that have either been vaccinated or had a native infection or both, you know, most people will, I hope, get the vaccine even if they've already had it. Um, then you're talking about reaching a state of herd immunity, but you're doing it with vaccines being one of the tools um, in that arsenal. So it's not meant to replace, it's not meant to, it's not meant to be a, an independent strategy. Okay. Well, uh, we've talked a lot about the, the vaccine process today, which is understandable. That's, the, that's sort of the, uh, the big next step that we need to get to. I appreciate your sharing and your, your wisdom and your knowledge here because uh, um, I think there are some concerns among some about what getting a vaccine might mean. Is there risk involved in that? Is there, um, mm -hmm. you know, where are we um, putting ourselves in a vulnerable position by doing that? And the fact that you actually have been a part of the trials is uh, most encouraging. And it sounds like the science is being, uh, being very, very careful in, uh, in all of this. And that uh, it's yeah. not really, and I think what is, the, the concept that we're actually in, being infected with it is really not quite the case. No, no, not at all. It's either it's either a single protein or it's genetic material to create that single protein um, to again create a neutralizing effect on the the native virus when it comes in by just coating that functional part. Um, but it is not this, and there are some, you know, what we call live vaccines. And so that's not a crazy thing to think, but this is not, this is not an example of that. Um, and again, I, I would urge people to understand that when you see press that this is the first vaccine of its type because it's an RNA vaccine. It is true, but we have, that doesn't mean that the science is brand new. We've been using this type of delivery mechanism for, like I said, you know, cancer biotherapeutics and immuno in a field called immuno-oncology now, um, forcing cells to make certain proteins and antibodies that slow down cancer development is something that we've been doing for quite a while. Um, so even though we've never applied it to something quite like this, we've always sort of known in the back of our heads that we could, um, and there just hasn't been sort of the right event to, to push us to do it, um, and now here we are. Um, so, you know, again, I would, I would not be too fearful of the fact that it hasn't been applied in that way. Um, if we're lucky enough to get all four approved, then you are likely to have sort of two basic formats. Um, if we get the luxury of choice between, you know, the protein being injected versus the RNA being injected, you know, I think people should feel free to, to talk to their clinician or their provider about, you know, if there is a preferred strategy for them personally. Um, but I, I don't think that either one is anything to fear in terms of getting COVID-19 from the vaccine. That's really not something that's possible. 
Um, and, and getting back to sort of the rollout, I, I don't know that we will be getting it from independent doctor's office. I sort of doubt it initially. I, I would imagine it's going to be more of like a public health type mm -hmm. of distribution scheme, um, you know, where sites will be chosen to just sort of mass distribute it. And um, one of the challenges with the RNA format, it's mostly good for the timeline in the sense that we can make it a lot faster. It's one of the real advantages to that format. But the challenge is it has, it's pretty finicky about the temperature that it's stored at. It becomes unstable in too hot or too cold temperatures. And so um, that's going to be part of the logistical challenge. They're going to want to reduce the number of places it has to be shipped between because there's a real worry that if it's sitting on the truck and gets too warm or gets too cold, um, that it's going to destabilize it. So they're going to have to be real careful and controlled about the distribution sites probably. So I don't know exactly what that'll mean. Hopefully someone's working on it though. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> Well, this is encouraging to hear, you know, hear some, or even see some light at, light at the end of the tunnel, it seems. And, uh, and uh, we appreciate so much your um, willingness to share with us. Uh, it, it certainly helps me to not only understand, but, but be at ease and be in, encouraged about, about everything. So thank you, Kimberly LaPointe, for taking the time to be with us. We deeply appreciate it. And this is uh, Father Michael Ellis. Uh, Signing off now and uh, saying uh, let's uh, let's stay safe and encouraged. God and keep bless. Keep your mask on for now. <laughs> keep your mask on. Yeah, absolutely. God bless you all. Okay. Bye. Uh.